Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. 2022 budget talks have begun at Hamilton City Hall. A lot of people have ideas on what the city should focus on. Hamilton's public school board will say goodbye to its director of education. The mayor of Niagara Falls happy the U.S. border has finally reopened to fully vaccinated Canadians. We dive into what happened at the deadly Astroworld concert. And we catch up with the Guess Who singer, Carl Dixon. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It was about three dozen residents presenting their budget priorities to city councillors during a virtual public meeting yesterday. Most of these delegates, these citizens, were from the group Just Recovery Hamilton Coalition. We chatted with Carl Andrus on the show yesterday. And this group envisions a better city after the pandemic, and, and certainly don't we all. One of those members is Kojo Dantney from the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. He says that making investments in an inclusive city that leaves no one behind is one of his top priorities. Housing as a human right, disability justice, mobility justice, investing in women, tackling systemic racism, investing in decent jobs, decent wages. A lot of big topics there. Affordable housing is another one. There is a laundry list of things to do, and uh, it's really um, not just this year. That's been the case in, in past years as well. Fred Eisenberger is the mayor of the city of Hamilton, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mayor Fred. How are you today? I am good. Uh, hopefully I can enjoy some decent weather, but I'll be uh, enjoying that indoors today. <laughs> I will say this, the community engagement around the budget presentations and delegations, I'm not sure has ever been higher. This is pretty impressive. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's important that we continue to engage with community and get their uh, perspective on uh, the, the budget going forward. Uh, you know, yesterday's uh, venture was, um, you know, largely around housing and uh, encampments. That uh, obviously is a, a bit of a lightning rod today. Just uh, just to remind everyone that's listening, we spend uh, upwards of $120 million on housing and homelessness uh, each and every year, $120, $120 million. Uh, and have done for the better part of 10 years. So we're, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, virtually billions of dollars that has been spent providing affordable housing, providing rent supports, uh, providing uh, uh, shelter space. Uh, you know, all, all of that is, is being done on an ongoing basis. So, uh, you know, the argument from uh, the, the folks yesterday is uh, we need more and more. Uh, yeah, we need more of everything. Um, we need more environmental uh, remediation. We need more, more dollars for uh, pandemic relief. Uh, we need more dollars for, for uh, housing and housing and homelessness. We need more dollars for employee-related matters as uh, costs of uh, our contracts or our employee or, you know, wage rates go up and continue to go up. And we need more money for you know current contracts where the costing of road repair, uh, building construction, facilities uh, repair and maintenance are all going up as well. And so this year we're predicting about a $49 million pressure on the uh, budget before we even get started as a result of a lot of the increase in costs that we've uh, we've been uh, having. I, you, don't, you don't want to dismiss the pandemic, and I have to be honest, uh, you know, we w- we're in a good position uh, by virtue of the resources we've received from both the federal and provincial governments to help offset, uh, you know, about $100 million worth of uh, pandemic costs, both in lost revenues and in additional costs. That's been a real help. 
but uh, I don't know that we can count on that in, uh, in future years for sure. That's certainly something we continue to work on. And that is something that we're also going to have to bear in mind in terms of added costs that, uh, you know, we're, was a very, very expensive venture, very necessary, very important. And we thank everyone out there for doing their part. But the reality is that is, uh, it is uh, blown a hole in everybody's budget. Do public delegations like the one we saw yesterday, does that steer the conversation during budget talks? And does it make councillors' jobs easier or harder? <laughs> Good question. Uh, look, I mean, it, it, uh, you know, everything, every, every comment uh, has, has bearing on the decision-making process. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to govern by referendum. You know, there's some article in the paper today. I think that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult way to try and govern your city. But at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, the views of, uh, the, you know, the city at large matters. Uh, do we get views from the city at large, uh, you know, on a regular basis? I would say no. Uh, do we get views from, you know, you know, individual groups out there that have particular causes that they're concerned about? Uh, yeah, more often than not. Uh, does it uh, completely sway the direction of the, uh, the, 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 the issue? Uh, I would say no to that either, uh, as well, I should say. Uh, but it has influence, uh, no question. And, you know, we are, we are moving in a more socially oriented way. We are, um, you know, as of recent times, based on, you know, some, some effective lobbying from uh, individuals in our community, we've added, you know, snow clearing uh, on, uh, on our major streets to, to bus stops, something that we haven't done before that, uh, that we're engaged in now as, uh, as, a, as an opportunity to, you know, help those that are challenged in terms of mobility to have a, an easier time getting to transit. So, you know, it has influence, there's no question, and, uh, and certainly, uh, you know, we'll continue to work to try and balance the, uh, the needs of the entire community so that uh, we not only have a, you know, a reasonable rate, but that we collect the kind of revenue necessary to maintain a good quality of life in our city. Budget talks are underway at Hamilton City Hall. We're in discussion with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger on 900 CHML. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton. Our Twitter poll question today, would you support a higher property tax increase in 2022 in an effort to help the city's pandemic recovery effort? 91% are saying no. Uh, Is there a willingness or an appetite to go above that 2% target as long as the increase addresses the city's biggest issues? From a council perspective? Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's uh, that's the that'll be the big burning question, and uh, and that that's that remains to be seen. You know, I'm I, I'm always of the mind that we need to get what we need. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not locked into uh, you know a two percent. I know that there's it's a guideline that uh, that has been set to to try and get people to sharpen their pencils and ensure that they're uh, they're you know making reasonable requests from uh, through the budget process. A guideline for staff, a guide, a guideline for outside agencies. But I'm personally not married to it. I I like to get uh, you know reasonable rates. Uh, you know, every, everyone uh, you know d- d- does not want to pay more taxes than they need to. But we also need to maintain a city and continue to develop the city so that we have future accessibility, good transit system, uh, you know, opportunities for clean water, and making sure that we uh, make the effort to do all of the environmental. Uh, initiatives that uh, that are necessary to put that into practice, and we have, and so all of that costs money, and so you know we can't can't just wipe that away and say, well, let's just make it two percent and ignore all the other things that we need to do that may require more money that we don't have the resources to do. So I would say, uh, you know, the pandemic has been uh, an expensive venture, 
uh, it is going to be paid for at some level or another by, uh, you know, some form of taxation, whether it's through the federal or provincial governments. Uh, so far, we've avoided having that happen on the municipal side. Uh, but uh, that may yet come as a result of, you know, potential downloading of some of those costs to, to municipalities. So we have to be mindful of that. And if that occurs, uh, you know, I think there's good rationale around ensuring that we uh, cover those costs because they're costs born to help protect people and keep people safe and give, get them the vaccine and all the things that public health and everyone else has been doing. So I, I think it's a reasonable expense to pass along, but whether it's going to come to the municipal level, that's, that remains the question. We continue to lobby the federal provincial governments to ensure that they cover those costs, not municipalities. Mayor Fred, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That is Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger on the latest budget deliberations going on at Hamilton City Hall. And uh, we'll keep you abreast of uh, the latest events on that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Still chatting about the budget deliberations at Hamilton City Hall. There were a number of delegates yesterday, dozens really, that came out to share their thoughts on how this city's budget should be um, slanted or geared towards or prioritizing certain aspects of our life, whether it's affordable housing, uh, tackling racism, inclusivity, making our environment and our economy a little greener. A lot of hot and heavy topics, including one about uh, a living wage for the city's students' employees. One of the delegates was Anthony Marco, the uh, president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council. Here's what he had to say yesterday at City Hall. By agreeing to pay a living wage to most workers, this council has indicated that most city workers deserve not to be in poverty. But the corollary of that is that because students have been brought up, the indication is that the city council believes that student workers they're okay to be working in poverty. Anthony Marco joins us on Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. Mr. Marco, good morning. Thanks for joining us here. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Uh, why focus on a living wage for the city's students' employees? Why is that a priority for you? Well, this has been an ongoing campaign by the Labor Council ever since the last municipal election. We put out surveys three and a half years ago to all the prospective candidates, and we got back results which indicated to us that a majority of the current councillors and the mayor uh, supported living wage. We asked a question which included summer students as well. And so when we saw that, we thought if there's going to be something that's worth pushing, it's that. And over the past couple of years, we've escalated. We uh, The first year, we got crossing guards in as, as living wage employees for the city, and that was great. And the second year, we got everybody else in except summer students. And so that's why we're continuing the push. We've got some dogged determination on this. And we along the way, we've picked up a lot of student advocates as well, who also delegated yesterday. And so they believe in the importance of a living wage. They believe that if the work is worth being done, that it deserves to be paid a living wage. Pretty odd that just summer students have been left out. Why is that? I don't know for sure. I mean, obviously, they're going to throw up budget concerns. They're going to and they're going to throw up costs. I think part of the reason is probably because many of these jobs probably come through the uh, summer student job grants that the federal government provides. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. And they require that you only pay a minimum wage and they won't fund for anything above that. I can tell you when we get summer students at the Labor Council to sometimes help us out, that uh, that we up, we up their wages to a living wage, at least a living wage, in order to make sure that they're getting paid a living wage for the summer. So I, I'm assuming it's simply a cost issue. I, I don't think that it's a uh, it's a belief issue. But there, there were a couple of responses on the surveys last time, which just basically said, we don't believe summer students should be making a living wage uh, because, you know, we don't think that they've had the training yet in order to to be able to uh, to justify paying them that much money. 
It kind of belittles their uh, their occupation to, for that summer, right? It completely does. And beyond that, the the tone that we've got back over the many last many years from some of the counselors, not all of them, but a couple of them, is that you know students are just going to to this and they're doing summer jobs for for spending money for beer money. Um, that's a horrible generalization of students. We have students now who are parents themselves. We have students now who are paying vast more tuition than we ever did, struggling with housing, in many cases, struggling to keep their families afloat. Their, their income contributes to their families. So it's not just a, uh, the concept of this old, outdated concept of a nuclear family with two parents and two kids, and we've got the money to send them to post-secondary, and this is just going to be spending money for them. This is survival for many of them. Anthony Marco is our guest, president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What, ki- uh, what type of reaction did you get from city councilors uh, around the table yesterday? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I, I know for the past couple of years when they've had this many delegations, there seems to be a bit of an unspoken rule between many of the councillors to not overdo it with the questions or else I think they'd be there for two straight days. So when they see a list that long, you tend not to get as many questions. The first couple of times that we did a living wage presentations, we got a lot of questions. But I mean, my tactic yesterday was a little bit different too. My tactic yesterday was to name all of the councillors and everyone sitting around that table who said that they would vote in favor of this. And now that it's three and a half years later, Uh, If we had a majority of people who said on a survey committed to living wage for all workers in Hamilton, why haven't we got it if a majority of them said yes? And so I confronted them a little bit with that. I didn't do it maliciously, but I hope to remind them what their commitments were. Well, we'll see if there's some light at the end of the tunnel, and hopefully we can get them on board as well. Anthony, really appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, Rick. That's Anthony Marco. He is the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council, chatting about uh, the budget deliberations that kicked off yesterday with a number of delegations, including his call for a living wage for summer employees here in the city of Hamilton. They're the only group left out, which seems kind of odd. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board is uh, suddenly looking for a new director of education after Manny Figueredo announced yesterday that he is stepping down to pursue a new career with the local YMCA. Joining us now is Manny Figueredo. Manny, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. What led to this decision? Well, Rick, it was, uh, you know, it was bittersweet. Um, many people don't know I started my career at the Y, and uh, even as an adolescent, as a you know, child of immigrants, that was probably one of the first places I found where I could belong and my parents could afford to send me. Um, so when I was at a crossroads in my early career where I was deciding whether to stay at the Y, I pursued teaching, but I'm glad I pursued teaching. But after seven years in my current role and 13 years uh, as an executive in education, um, the Y uh, vision and as a community partner really made me to explore and really think about this. And it was really, I think, a, a moment in my life when I was um, in, at the border of Syria during the civil war there and came back that summer and saw so many of our newcomers come in and saw the work that our settlement workers at the Y do to our new families. So there were a lot of uh, pull factors for me and really loved the vision. I loved the opportunities I've had in HWDSB, but I see this as uh, another opportunity to really give back to the community and the Y has a great tradition of uh, improving outcomes and removing barriers for, for all ages, not just youth at all ages. So I'm excited about this next chapter. This is like a returning uh, to your roots, so to speak. So that's, uh, you know, we applaud you for doing that for sure. With anyone, they leave a legacy whenever they leave a post of prominence. What would your legacy be? Yeah, you know, I've been reflecting upon this. We know that it's been challenging over the last two and a half years in education, some local challenges. But 
I'm really proud of a couple of things that, that, you know, all of us have left, I think. But one thing was clear that we needed to improve our graduation outcomes. And uh, when I started, uh, our graduation was was uh, was one of the boards that was, was still below 80 at around 78. And leaving as a collective group, we moved that up to 82, 83. And most recently, the last three years, proud of uh, really ensuring that there's a there's a equity and Indigenous safety plan. And we've um, developed a human rights department connected to our human resource department around really looking at um, removing barriers and looking at students who not just historically been underserved, but are still currently underserved. And so our equity hiring action plan, our human rights department, um, I believe will be a legacy that uh, I, will, I will leave behind for, for the betterment of our students and the school board. Got about a minute. You're uh, leaving on February 28th, and you're going to take on the post of regional president and CEO of the YMCA uh, here in town. What are your goals for the YMCA? Well, you know, it's like any transition that you have to develop a real entry plan. What I've heard uh, from the board of directors is that there's a fantastic senior leadership team and to really leverage that expertise. But locally in the community, we know that the Y is looking for a new uh, facility. And because as a school board, we were working on a, on a downtown community hub uh, vision for a new Y on our Sir John A. McDonald site connected to a new school. So that business plan still exists. And so that will be definitely a, a goal that I'm going to put uh, front and center. And I think also people I sometimes realize that they connect the Y uh, around fitness and aquatics, obviously a key service they provide. But one of their greatest services is childcare. So if, if there's a new federal universal childcare, that'll be uh, a an, an critical, important piece because, as you know, the Y provides uh, childcare across our the broader communities of Burlington, Hamilton, Brantford, and one of their greatest partners is school boards. So those will be some key key goals that the board has identified, and I'm looking forward to that challenge with the senior team. Manny, congratulations on your more than two decades in the education sector, certainly as Director of Education, and uh, congratulations on the new gig as well, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Rick. Have a good day. You too. That's Manny Figueredo, Director of Education, or at least outgoing Director of Education at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, soon to be Regional President and CEO of the local YMCA. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Finally, the land border between Canada and the U.S. has opened to fully vaccinated Canadians. We are pleased to be joined by the Mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati. Jim, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Rick. Thanks for having me. Uh, listen, this is a long time coming, wasn't it? Yeah, it's. It, I'll tell you, it's been almost two years. It feels like it's been two decades. Uh, <laughs> absolutely has disrupted so many people. And it's hard when you live in a border town. And I speak with Mayor Ray Stano, the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, all the time. And we see this as one big city divided by a border. And it's been very disruptive because it's split families, friends, uh, disrupted us with our regular patterns of where we like to shop, where we like to eat. Just imagine wherever anybody listening right now lives, cutting half your city off and saying you cannot go there anymore for the next two years, period, with no real notice. It'd be very disruptive. And it's such a great day as the borders are starting to open up again. We're really, really happy. We're going in the right direction. Beyond being a great day, what are some of the uh, feelings or thoughts that are being uh, told to you or that you feel? Is there a, you know, a sense of relief? Is this uh, you know, just one step towards a little more closer to normalcy? What are you feeling today? 
you know, all the above. And I'd say it's tempered enthusiasm. And the reason it's tempered is because our government is still requiring a negative PCR test or molecular test upon re-entry into Canada. And and that's a huge encumbrance in many ways. Financially, it's restrictive. It's expensive. A family could spend upwards of $1,000 if you want a day trip or catch a Bills game or go shopping or go eat or whatever it is that you want to do in the U.S., and it's it's not just expensive, but it's a lot of work. You've got to plan around it. It's uncertain if your test results are in. And also it's counterintuitive because what people are planning to do and what they're doing, they're getting tests in Canada. Then they're going into the U.S., they're going to football games, they're going to go to all the things they normally do and come back with using the original test results that they had done while they were in Canada before their trip. So it doesn't really serve a useful purpose. And I know that Dr. Tam said she's revisiting this. We're really glad that she is. But until they remove the PCR testing as they have in the U.S., as they have in Europe, that's when things will really truly open up and that's when it'll really feel normal again. So you're making a call that this test should be scrapped? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, this morning there was a panel of border city mayors, uh, congressmen, business representatives, and uh, we did a media panel this morning, and we're calling on the federal government to please remove the unnecessary uh, COVID testing requirement for getting back into Canada. And that's for both Canadians returning or Americans or anyone visiting the country. As we're saying as long as you're fully vaccinated, that's the panacea. That's what we've been asking people to do. And just being able to cross the border will be enough incentive to hopefully incentivize those that have not yet been vaccinated in order that they might be able to cross the border. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton is Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati. You're listening to 900 CHML. What impact did reopening the border to fully vaccinated Americans have on Niagara Falls this fall and, and obviously to date? No, Rick, that's a great question. And that's really the empirical uh, evidence that we're using to know right now uh, what we expect to happen. This summer, uh, when we did open up to Americans, but required a negative PCR test on top of being fully vaccinated, that result, that outcome was that really Americans did not return. We had a handful of Americans come. They made the decision to pass on coming to Canada at this point because it's easier to travel to Europe where there are no PCR requirements. It just adds one level of, I think, uh, another wrinkle to the trip. And I know we've heard a lot of people say the same thing. Why are you doing it? What's the purpose of it? And, and we know when we were kids, my brothers, my sister and I, we used to play these games, Rick, where we'd see who could find the most license plates from different states and provinces. Well, this summer, my kids wouldn't be playing that game because there was only a handful from New York and from Quebec. We know that this um, extra measure is just enough to keep people out. And as long as we have it here in uh, Canada upon re-entry, it's going to be an, an encumbrance to the border crossings. What is the biggest challenge going forward to a border city like Niagara Falls? Well, in Niagara Falls, obviously, we're very heavily dependent on tourism. And, you know, we're the number one leisure destination in the country. Upwards of 14 million people come here every year. 25% typically come from the U.S., and that represents 50% of the revenue, 5 zero. So it's significant. And I know people say, well, you should be diversifying your economy. And I agree with that. But it's hard not to be heavily dependent on tourism when you live with one of the great natural wonders of the world, one of the great brands of the world. I call it sometimes the Coca-Cola of municipalities. It's hard not to be heavily 
leaning on tourism. So it's been hugely impactful. 40,000 people count on tourism to feed their families. So we need tourism to return to normal as soon as possible. We've had two devastating seasons in tourism, and, and we're looking for things to get back to normal. We've encouraged everyone to do the right thing, go out and get vaccinated. Here in Niagara Falls, we created programs above and beyond. We have safetoplay.ca and safetostay.ca where we go above and beyond COVID protocols to ensure that people are safe, that they feel safe, and that the only thing they leave with are great memories of being in Niagara Falls. We'll have to leave it there. Mayor Jim, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rick. So there's a sense of what's happening in, uh, well, at least from our perspective, going into the states. Down in the U.S., the pandemic is still going strong. There's been a decline in case numbers south of the border. Uh, That has stalled. Uh, More foreign travelers, as we know now, going to uh, the U.S., and it could put a stress on the testing system. With more on that, here's Global's Reggie Cicchini. 20 months of waiting came to an end on Monday, but with scores of international travelers now descending on U.S. soil, they're running headfirst into a problem still to be solved. It's still a crisis in the U.S. and probably even more concerning when you think about the fact that a number of people coming from other countries might also be kind of waning in their own immunity. Less than 60% of eligible Americans are fully vaccinated, lending to a stubbornly high infection rate. All 50 states are still experiencing substantial to high community spread, and in colder northern states, daily cases are increasing. The Biden administration is going full throttle on its workplace vaccine mandates, even as it faces a legal challenge weeks ahead of a deadline. More than 750,000 people have died of COVID. Waiting to get more people vaccinated will lead to more outbreaks and sickness. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that we can't get or take our foot off the accelerator until we're at the finish line. Health experts caution that until more people are protected, peaks in the United States are still to come, and they're looking overseas with worry. Europe is in the throes of a new crisis, with the WHO expressing grave concern. We are at another critical point of pandemic resurgence. Europe is back at the epicenter of the pandemic. It's driving the urgency to ensure Americans are protected and get tested, which could also be facing new constraints. U.S. labs can process only 479 million tests per month, and that will now include results for those needing them to return home. It does put stress and pressure, especially as labs are dealing with a heightened number of cases in children. Officials are cautiously optimistic that an end could be in sight, but until then, the unknowns in this pandemic hang low, even as restrictions are eased. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When we go to concerts and and different events, we expect safety and security. And all the videos I've seen, I didn't see any security. I saw very little security. That is the voice of Bernard Blount. His nine-year-old son is now fighting for his life after being crushed by the crowd at last Friday night's Astroworld concert in Houston, headlined by rapper Travis Scott. Now, Houston police uh, have launched a criminal investigation after eight people died and more than 300 others were hurt, some critically. And now Travis Scott, Live Nation, even Drake, all facing lawsuits after this uh, tragedy. Fred Wittenbaum is a member of the PEM Memorial Scholarship Fund, which started after a similar tragedy at a Who concert back in 1979 in Cincinnati. And Fred joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Fred, good morning. Hey, Rick, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. The uh, The Astral World tragedy really must hit close to home for you. Uh, it really hits us right smack in the gut. And I, I'm actually really sorry to have to be talking to you today uh, because our wish with this would be that this never had taken place. This is 
the third major event like this since 1979. Uh, you recall that there was a, a, an event in 2000 with the Pearl Jam uh, Denmark concert in the mosh pit that left nine dead. The 79 concert left 11 dead outside the Coliseum on the plaza due to festival seating issues. And now we've got the 2021 Travis Scott mosh area World disaster with at least eight dead. When are people going to learn? People being the venues, the promoters, that festival seating and festival concerts are a disaster. And this is what happens from them. Is Are all the, uh, the entities that you've listed from the performers to the organizers uh, to the uh, promoters, are they all at fault here? I'm not a legal person and I can't assign judgment, but I can only go by what happened at, at the concert that we lost our friends at. It was very, very sad, very, very frustrating. Um, it put us in a position where you, you, you look to assign blame and it's very difficult to assign blame because there's so many moving parts in these situations and everybody tries to deflect that's involved directly. And the sad part is you're left with families of the, of the dead souls. You're left with survivors who carry this for the rest of their life. You cannot get past it. Uh, this has made us relive the events of this horror of, of our horrific night. Uh, the agony of waiting, wondering, and hoping that our families and friends were safe. More importantly, the unknowing. Uh, our hearts are broken. For those families and survivors in Houston, we know intimately what they're going through right now. It is a pain that will never, ever go away. I know lawsuits have been filed, and that's all, all, all well and good, but eight people have died, and, and more might die because there's a number of people who are critically injured in a hospital. That's what, that's what the reports were. Um, I've tried to listen to just the verbal statements. It's very difficult for all of us here to watch the video, uh, the comments that are being made by the survivors, the participants, are eerily similar to those from the 1979 December 3rd event, if you go back and listen to those. Um, it all revolves back around the same thing, which is festival seating, festival concerts lend to this situation occurring, where you put too many people in a, in a place the crowd takes over. It's impossible to stop the crush and the movement. People start to go down. Uh, they can't breathe. They become asphyxiated. And it's a, it's a circumstance that should never occur because we've learned the lesson the hard way in the past. But unfortunately, they've released the bans on festival seating and festival concerts after 25 years. And now we're stuck in a situation where it appears that it's this has happened again. It should never have happened. I think we can all agree on that. Fred, really appreciate your insight into this topic. And, uh, yes, we are remembering uh, the victims of this latest tragedy. Thanks for joining us today. It's our pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Fred Wittenbaum is a member of the PEM Memorial Scholarship Fund, which started after a very similar tragedy at a Who concert back in Cincinnati in 1979. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is pretty cool. Carl Dixon sings the Guess Who featuring former members 
of the Guess Who. This is all happening. Well, as we speak, they've been touring around. Uh, one of the stops is going to happen on Friday, December the 3rd at Brantford Sanderson Center. And we're going to be giving away tickets to this show all next week. So stay tuned for that. But we are ecstatic to be joined by Carl Dixon, Canadian rock and roll singer who fronted the Guess Who for many, many years. And he joins us now. Carl, good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys in there? Not too bad. You've had, uh, I think, an incredible career. Uh, lead singer of Coney Hatch, the Guess Who. When you think of all your years on stage performing, what words come to mind to describe your life as a musician? <laughs> well, you missed the four, year, the four years in April wine along the way, too. Yeah. Um, you know what? The words I use, I called one of my albums, Lucky Dog. Wow. So you would consider yourself one of the lucky guys. Yeah. I started off, my, my mother reminded me the other day, she, she actively tried to discourage me from pursuing this path, as did my father, but I could not be stopped. And, <laughs> uh, you know, there are many peaks and valleys in any artistic career, in any life, but particularly artistic careers, because you, you put yourself out there where you only get paid if people like what you're doing and they want more of it. So, um, you don't always have it figured out, but I always found a way to come back even stronger after each setback, each valley. What uh, What did your parents want you to become? Well, <laughs> anything but a musician. My I dad. <laughs> I have an Estonian background, so a lot of the Estonians who came here became engineers and architects. My dad thought I could be a dentist, like my uncle Bob, because he makes good money and he sets his own hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. What drew you to music? What was what was the allure of performing? You know, uh, like so many people uh, that came up at that time, it was the the excitement and the power of rock and roll as it first uh, emerged and exploded into the pop culture scene. Um, a lot of people talk about the magic moment where they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I was only three or four years old when that happened, so I missed it. But... <laughs> um, the uh, I guess later in the 60s, it started to really catch my fancy with the, the top 40 radio was a huge thing at that time. And so we would hear the singles from I remember the first album I ever bought was the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack to The Graduate with Sounds of Silence and uh, Mrs. Robinson on it. That just thought that was so cool. And then the Guess Who started having their hits and the Beatles uh, in their later days and Credence and all that stuff. And I just thought, this is so desperately exciting. So I ditched the piano lessons that I'd been taking for five years, starting when I was four, and uh, started playing guitar instead. Carl Dixon is our guest, longtime frontman of the Guess Who. He's going to be performing uh, along with members of the Guess Who at Branford Sanderson Center on December 3rd. Uh, we're going to be giving away tickets all week next week on Good Morning Hamilton to this show. Um, you joined the band in 97. You replaced Burton Cummings. What was that like? It was uh, a thrill uh, because I'd grown up with that music. The Guess Who's single of Undone and Laughing was the first 45 I ever bought as a little boy. Hmm. And they were the first band I ever saw in concert. Uh, they used to, well, in a big stage, uh, they, uh, they used to play the exhibition in Toronto every summer. So I saw them in 73. And then many years later, I ended up asked to join the band as the singer. I grew up learning how to sing a lot in, in large part from learning how Burton sang his records and singing along with them. And that was a big influence. 
And, you know, I give all the credit when I was in the band, I made sure that uh, uh, I let Burton's people know that it was done with complete respect and love for what he'd created and the power that he uh, generated with his friends. I mean, it wasn't a one man army. The rest of the guys in the band contributed hugely to what the guess who became. And that was the uh, privilege, I guess, of being part of that was being experiencing what they'd learned and the things they uh, they were they still brought to the party. And uh, there, there are some people who, uh, I guess, complained that Burton was no longer in the chair, but he kept sort of walking away from the chair and the rest of the guys couldn't stay home and do nothing. So that's how I ended up, along with some other guys in the years prior to me, some other guys ended up in there. Should be a great show. Really looking forward to it. Friday, December the 3rd at the Sanderson Center in Brantford. Again, we'll be giving away tickets all week next week. Carl, really appreciate the time. Have a lot of fun on December 3rd. I know you will. I have one last thing to say. If yeah. you want to hear the Guess Who music done right and uh, you love that stuff, come out and see us at the Sanderson Center. If you don't like the Guess Who music, you should just stay clear of the place. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the time, Carl. Okay, guys. See you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.